0: Amen. It's always good to hear updates from our global workers and what God's doing in and through them around the globe. As we get started this morning, I wanna take a moment of personal privilege and say thank you to you as a church. Uh, many of you know that I have served here now for a little over 20 years, and I started out here as an intern back in 2002, working in the student ministry for Jay and Aaron and Amy Joe. And if you would have asked me 20 years ago if I ever thought I'd be up here preaching, I would have laughed at you and they would have too. Um, But I just wanna say thank you to you as a church because many of you have had a direct involvement in my life and have invested in me. But even if you hadn't, you have been a part of God's work in this church, allowing me to grow into my calling and invest in me so that I can serve you. So just thank you. Uh, I just wanna say that as we get rolling today. And I wanna welcome you into 2023. You have made it here to the 930 service on the first day of the new year. Good work. Maybe it was like my neighborhood, there were fireworks going off till 1.15. I did not get a lot of sleep, but here we are today. So welcome. You have also survived the week in between Christmas and New Year's where nobody's really sure what day it is. Maybe you've worn that hoodie for about three to four straight days and that's totally acceptable. But you are here now and you have entered in to the new year. And as I was uh, preparing to preach after Mike asked me to preach, I was thinking about New Year and kind of this idea of starting over or restarting. And I went back in my mind to my years growing up. I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, which I would consider to be the golden age of video game consoles. All right, so yeah, I see some other millennials, the older millennials nodding their head. During that stretch of time, we had the Nintendo, we had Sega Genesis, we had Super Nintendo, And later on, we had Nintendo 64, great gaming systems. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just trust me. Now, something that was very prominent on every one of those video game consoles that you would see either on the top or on the front was a big old reset button. You'd be playing your game. Maybe you didn't wanna lose that. You couldn't make that jump to the warp tunnel as Mario and you didn't wanna hear that music laughing at you again. So you went up and you hit the reset button, gone, done. Game started over. Or maybe you had your friend over with the Sega Genesis and you were already losing 21 to nothing in Madden and you didn't wanna do that. So you ran over and you hit the reset button and that game was over. Now your friend might wanna fight you, but your game was over. Everything was started over. It was fresh, it was new. Nothing happened in the memory banks. That reset button was great. And for whatever reason in our culture today, and really just over the past 50 to 60 years, we view this first day of the new year, the start of the calendar year is our reset button. We have been conditioned to think that as we turn the page on the calendar, that we will be able to start fresh and start anew with anything that we put our mind to, right? You got the hashtag new year, new you, right? Everything starts over again. And there's nothing wrong with coming up with resolutions or being disciplined and all those things. Nothing wrong with that at all. But when we start to believe that the commitments that we make each and every year will make us or turn us into new people, then we start to fall into the trap that God's people have been falling into for thousands and thousands of years. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in the story of Nehemiah and God's people after they returned from exile. So if you would stand with me in honor of God's word, we're going to read today from Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 32 through 38, Nehemiah 9, verses 32 through 38. So now our God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant, do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us. Our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until today, You are righteous concerning all that has happened to us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings that you gave them. When they were in the kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them and in your spacious and fertile land that you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. So here we are today, slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings that you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come before you at the start of a new year, may our lives be covered and led by your grace, not by the strength of our commitments or the things that we resolve to do, but Father, help us to be led by your spirit. So Lord, show us today how we need to be made new, only in and through you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So we're kind of parachuting in to the last part of the book of Nehemiah today. So I wanna give you a little context on this book. You may be familiar with it. If you've read the book of Nehemiah before, you're probably most familiar with the building of the wall. That's a key part of the book. But the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are really about the people returning from exile. The Persian rulers who had taken over the Babylonians are allowing the Jewish people to return to their land, to return to Jerusalem after the exile. So in Ezra they return and during that process they rebuild the temple and the book of Nehemiah covers the story of how Nehemiah, who served for one of the Persian rulers, comes back to Jerusalem to help lead the effort to rebuild the wall. That was important because that gave the people security in the city, it gave them a geopolitical standpoint where they could live and work and worship God correctly. So in the first part of the book, in chapters one through seven, that's what we have. It's the story of the rebuilding of the wall. That's probably the most famous. That's the leadership part of Nehemiah. But the lesser read and the lesser discussed part is chapters eight through 13, which is focused on Ezra and Nehemiah leading the effort to rebuild God's people so that they would come back into Jerusalem and that they would worship God properly, that they would live before him in the correct way that they were always supposed to do. And we pick up the story today, what I just read, and the part where they are repenting. They have heard God's word read in chapter 8, and they go before him and they cry out, God, you are great, and you are good, and you are just, and you've done everything right. So we repent before you today, and we're going to make a commitment to you. So during our time today, we're gonna walk through chapters 10 through 13 and kind of survey those chapters, and we're gonna do it in a super Baptist way. I'm going to give you a three-point alliterated walkthrough, chapters 10 through 13. So the first point that we're gonna highlight today is this commitment that the people of God make before Him after they repent. So the commitment that God's people make in chapter 10, look down with me at chapter 10, verse 29. And we'll see the commitment that they make before God. They say, Join, they joined with their noble brothers and they committed themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances and statutes of the Lord, our Lord. So first off, they make this strong commitment before God that they're gonna obey all of the laws and all of the statutes and all of the ordinances that God ever gave them through the servant Moses. This is a big deal. They've come back from exile. Why'd they go into exile? Because they didn't obey the law. But now they're coming back and they're doubling down and they say, we are going to commit before you God to obey all of these statutes and ordinances. That's a good thing to do. I mean, it's good to make a commitment to God and say you're gonna change and live in accordance to his law. But go back in here. I wanna highlight a word. It says they committed themselves with a sworn oath. And your translation might say they invited the blessings and the curses upon them. This is a big deal because they weren't just making a commitment. They were upping the ante. They were saying to God, hey, if we obey you and we follow the statutes and the ordinances, you'll bless us. And then if we don't, Then we invite your wrath to come down upon us. That's upping the ante a little bit on that commitment. That would be like when you're signing your mortgage documents, that part where you sign that if you don't pay, they can come and foreclose on your house. You say, not only can you take our house, you can take our lives. So this is pretty significant of a commitment for them to make as they're coming back into Jerusalem. They're making a covenant before God. We're going to obey everything. But then they tack on three specific things in the text in chapter 10 that we're going to highlight and hold on to as we work this story. The first one in verse, th- in verse 30 is they say, number one, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples, and we will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. So they make a commitment, hey, we're not going to intermarry with the people of the surrounding nations. And at first glance, you read that and you're like, hey, that's kind of xenophobic that's not really nice Is that racist no what's happening here is not that they didn't want other people from the surrounding nations to come to know their God we know from other stories in the Old Testament with Rahab and with Ruth that people from the surrounding nations came to worship the one true God but here they're trying to preserve the right worship of God the issue wasn't the intermarriage it was that when they married people from other nations they worship They're idols, they worship the false gods and that's what led them into exile in the first place. So the first thing they commit to is that they're not gonna do that any longer. They're not gonna intermarry with the surrounding nations and adopt their religious practices. And number two, they commit to when the surrounding peoples, in verse 31, when the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day And we will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year, and we will cancel every debt. So their second commitment is that they're gonna actually honor the Sabbath and keep it holy like they were supposed to. Up until this time, they had found loopholes in the law and they had done business on the Sabbath and they had violated it. So they're saying to God clearly, we commit to honor the Sabbath, to not find loopholes, to not do business. We are not gonna do that any longer. And then their third commitment in verses 34 through 39. We're not gonna go read through all of that, but the key here is that they commit to God that they're going to worship Him properly again. They've come back, they have the temple, they've got the wall, they're gonna worship Him, they're gonna take care of the temple, they're gonna provide for the Levites, they're gonna do everything with the the grain and bring it to the storehouses just like they were supposed to do. And the last words of verse 39 gives the key to their commitment. They say, we will not neglect the house of our God. Which implies that that's what they had done before. So they tell God, we're gonna obey all of your law, we're gonna obey all of your statutes in three specific ways. We're not gonna intermarry, we're not gonna violate the Sabbath anymore, and we will not neglect the house of our God. So that's their commitment. Hold on to those three, because we'll see that come back up a little later in the story. And we move from the commitment of God's people to their celebration. We get to chapters 11 and 12, And chapter 11 and 12, what it really shows is that they're following through on their commitments. This is like that honeymoon period when you make those resolutions, when you actually do them, right? This is the first three months of the year where you keep working out and you keep reading your Bible like you're supposed to. That's what's happening here in chapter 11 and 12. Because in chapter 11, they go back into Jerusalem. They repopulate the city. A 10th of the people from all of God's people go back and they live in Jerusalem and they're worshiping God like they're supposed to. And we move into chapter 12 and they reestablish the proper worship in the temple. They bring the Levites back, they bring the priests back. And that culminates in chapter 12 with this wonderful worship service where Ezra and Nehemiah and the other priests and the Levites come and they walk along the wall and they have a dedication service. And the word rejoice is used throughout this passage to show that God's people are doing what they're supposed to do. They've committed this before Him and they're living it out. God's people are worshiping Him in a proper way. And if you go to 12, verse 43, it captures the essence of this worship service and this celebration. It says that on that day they offered great sacrifices and they rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. God's people were always intended to be a light to the nations. Their rejoicing in the Lord and their joy in the Lord was supposed to be seen by everyone, and here it's actually happening. So the commitment of God's people is followed by a great celebration and worship of Him. And if we were writing this story, if Disney were doing this or a Hollywood movie, this is where we would end the book, because everything's going well. They're actually following through on what they said that they were going to do. This is a lot like that mountaintop experience. If you grew up in the church you had when you went to youth camp, you know what I'm talking about? You know, you would go go away for a week, you'd get away from all the distractions, you'd have great worship, you'd hear good teaching, you'd respond, you'd fill out that commitment card, you'd destroy some of the CDs that you had, maybe not all of them, but enough of them so that they knew that you were serious. All of those things, and then you say, God, I'm never gonna sin again. As soon as I get back from this camp, I'm gonna be great, I'm gonna follow you. We all know how that works out, right? You get back into town, and you have a week, maybe two weeks or a month, and those old influences, those old circumstances come in, and you're right back to where you were before. So we could end the story here, and that would be great, because God's people are doing what God called them to do. But we know that there's something looming, and that's chapter 13, where we see the collapse of God's people. So look back at chapter 13. We see something that's important for us to notice. Something happens in verse six. Nehemiah tells us that while all of this was happening, he sees that things are happening that are not going well in Jerusalem. The people are not being obedient. And he says, while all of this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. So Nehemiah leaves. He goes back to his boss. He goes back to Babylon to check in. We don't know how long he was there. We don't know how often he did this. But we know on this particular trip, when he left, things started to unravel. And I can relate to this in a very small way, because I am the father of four young children. I have a 10 and eight, uh, a 10, eight, seven and four, that's right. And we have a playroom upstairs. And I like to think of our playroom as a land of chaos, anarchy, and mystery. Um, Because my wife and I, we can go up there, we can clean it up. My wife can set up this wonderful organizational system and structure for where my kids can put things away. And then we can leave and 30 seconds later, it is utterly destroyed. Those Sonic toys that we threw away two years ago, they're magically back. And in a small way, this is a lot like what, what Nehemiah felt when he came back into Jerusalem. He comes back into the city and he finds that everything has gone wrong. He goes to the temple and things aren't going well there. People are living in it that aren't supposed to be. They're not taking care of the priests and the Levites. And if you go to 13, verse 11, he says, therefore I rebuke the officials, asking why has the house of God been neglected? Does that sound familiar? What they commit to do that third commitment in chapter 10? We will not neglect the house of our God. They're neglecting it. Go down to verse 15. Then he goes on throughout the city and he says, At that time I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine, grapes and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. What was the second thing they committed to do? in chapter 10, that they would honor the Sabbath. They wouldn't do business on the Sabbath, but here they are. Then go down, you can kinda see what's happening here, how it's starting to all unravel. Go down to verse 23 in chapter 13. Nehemiah says, in those days I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, but they could not speak Hebrew. The first thing they committed to, not to marry those from the surrounding nations. And now you have their children that aren't even able to speak the language that they would have needed to know in order to properly worship God. So the circumstances changed just a little bit. Nehemiah is gone and all of those commitments are gone with him. Now, what we need to know in the story here is that it ends on this note, not just to be sad. You've got Nehemiah who, who continues to say through chapter 13, remember God the good for all that I've done, for remember me for my good and what I've done to try to reform these people. And he did, he fixed the problems in chapter 13, but how much longer was it gonna be before they unraveled again? The story ends in this way to point us forward beyond Nehemiah and beyond the people of Jerusalem to the savior that they needed. Because these people weren't gonna be able to keep the commitments ever. They didn't need a new commitment, they needed a new heart. And Nehemiah or Ezra or any of the leaders in the Old Testament were not gonna be able to give that to them. So Nehemiah was a great leader, but he couldn't do it either. Because we needed and they needed a savior, the one that we have celebrated for the past month who came to us in the flesh, God in the flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, the one who would be able to fulfill the law perfectly, to obey all of the ordinances and statutes and commands that God gave to live that sinless life and who would be able to give them a new heart that they needed to fully obey God through his death and his resurrection. So the story here today leads us to where, what do we do now as we move into 2023, as we make these commitments before God? Well, it's a reminder here that we're not gonna really ever be able to keep our commitments fully. We are human and fallen and sinful people, and that, that's okay, we don't want to stay there, but we have to come to grips with that reality. Now, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer and just crush all of your dreams as you're starting these New Year's resolutions. Like, look, I want you to ride your Peloton. Say that you're going to read 60 books. Um, Say that you're going to do the whole 30 meal plan. Actually, don't do that one because on day four through seven, you're gonna wanna kill people because you haven't had sugar or bread. So don't do that one. That one I will say don't do. But do all of the different disciplines. Be disciplined people, but don't fall into the trap that God's people did and that we typically do today where we think the strength of our commitment is going to fundamentally change who we are, because it's not. If you're a follower of Christ here today, if you have put your faith in Jesus and you're following after him, let me remind you of something. You don't need to make yourself new. You've already been made new in Christ. You have been bought with a price. You have been brought from darkness into light. You have already been made new. Live out your identity in Christ. Become more like the one who has saved you. God's will for your life, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, is your sanctification. That means you are continually becoming more and more like Jesus. Not perfectly, but as the Spirit works in and through you, you become more like the Son. So this year, as you start off the year, Have your list, that's fine. Have your word of what you're going to do, but ask God to lead you by His Spirit to become more like Christ. If you've already made your lists and already determined what you're gonna do, ask yourself, have I asked the Lord for His guidance in this? Have I asked the Spirit to lead me in these efforts? Because we don't wanna fall into the trap of just doing things to try to impress God. We wanna become more like Christ. And if you're here today, and and maybe this is the the first day of your endeavor to become a new person. Maybe you're like, hey, I'm gonna go to church, start off the new year right, we're gonna do this every week, me and the family, we're gonna come here because this is how we are going to be different in 2023. And you want to be made new desperately. I don't know what your circumstance is, you want to be new. Bad news is, is, You can't do that in your own strength. You coming here every week, it's good. I think it's evidence that God is working in your life, but you doing a discipline or you coming into this building will not change who you are. But the good news is, is that you can be made new and it doesn't have to come through your effort. It's already been won and purchased through what Jesus did for you. Jesus told us that he he came to give us life, to give us abundant life. He says that he will give rest to anyone who comes to him that is weary. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that anybody who is in Christ is a new creation. And at the end of God's word, he tells us, behold, I am making all things new. So if you wanna be new in 2023, come to Jesus. He offers you forgiveness, he offers you grace, he offers you everything that you want to be, not only for today, but for eternity. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you have not put your faith in Him, that's what we want to invite you to. Because that is what will provide lasting change in your life. It won't be perfect, it's not gonna be all roses and and nice and happy, but it will provide you what you have been longing for your entire life. You can find your rest in Him. So as we start off this new year together, Those of us believers, unbelievers alike, we can all find what we need not in our commitments and not in our strength, but in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. So as we step forward into this new year, let's all of us entrust ourselves into the one who is making all things new. Let's pray together. God, we are all in need of your grace. Father, for those of us who are here that know you and have put our faith in you, guide us by your Spirit so that we would look more like your Son. At the end of 2023, Father, may we look more like Jesus than we do today. We can't will or work that out in our own strength, God, but your Spirit can empower us and give us everything that we need to live a godly life. So Father, please allow us to grow to be more like your Son. And Lord, for those who are here today that want a new start, that want to be made new, but they don't know you, they don't have a relationship with you through your son. God, would today be the day of salvation? Would you draw them to yourself by your spirit and give them a new heart, give them a new life, and give them a hope that not only lasts for today, but that does not disappoint for eternity? We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.